If anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain, not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate, to all of you. This punishment by the majority is sufficient for that person. As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. I wrote for this purpose, to test your character, to see if you are obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I do too. For what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it is for your benefit in the presence of Christ, so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. Well, good morning. Uh, you know, it occurred to me this past week, things have been kind of... Uh, uh, chaotic and busy in our house lately, and, and it has been four weeks since our grandson was born, and you have not had the benefit of seeing a picture of him. And so here's a picture of our grandson, Louis Gideon, uh, born four weeks ago today, and his uh, and here's the wonderful family, his, his older brother, uh, uh, Oliver. Oliver's maybe watching right now. Um, and Katie, wonderful mom, and Zachary, my son, who got the hair in the family. <laughs> Let's pray, please. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can always trust that you know us better than we know ourselves, that you are the maker of our hearts, you know our future, you know the dreams that you have for us, and that you are always at work for the good. Um, Lord, I thank you that you have a message for each of us today, and it's not just a message for the group, but you would speak to each heart because you know our past, you know our future, you know what we need from you right now, and so I ask that you would accomplish your will, that your will would be done in these next few moments together. Through Christ we pray, amen. I believe it was Homer or Robert Frost who once wrote the poem, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great, it, okay, it wasn't eat Homer. I don't think it was Robert Frost either. But you know the rest of the song, or right, the rest of the poem, right? All the king's horses and all the king's men. All right, uh, I could tell we need to go through it. All the king's horses and all the king's men. Okay, beautiful. The question for us, uh, 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 um, now there's been a lot of debate through the years about who exactly is this analogous to? What's this poem actually talking about? I think the more interesting question is, who was the first person that thought it was a clever idea to take the story of a fatality and turn it into a children's nursery rhyme? Strange what's next. Nursery rhyme on diaper rash. Nursery rhyme on nuclear explosions, you know. But the question for us today is, is there any hope for Humpty Dumpty? When we fall, can the pieces be put back together? Because the reality is, we all relate to Humpty Dumpty. We all fear that experience of falling 
and the pieces being irreparable. Or maybe you have a friend who could star in that commercial, help I've fallen and I can't get up. And their only hope of being restored is if they have a friend like you who can help them. How does God restore the fallen? Is there hope? Second Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul deals with a Humpty Dumpty episode from the history of the church in Corinth. A man has done some horrible things, and the church at first did not respond well, and then responded well, and the man is being redeemed. And, uh, and there's just lots of wisdom for us to learn. David Augsburg, years ago, wrote a, a psychiatrist wrote a book called Caring Enough to Confront. And his big idea was not just that if you care about people, you will confront, but if done wisely and lovingly, not only can it restore the person, but it can also deepen loving relationships. I know that's what we all want. And Paul gives us wisdom on that here in 2 Corinthians 2, as well as we're going to dabble a bit in 1 Corinthians 5 as well. The place I want for us to begin, though, is by understanding this Humpty Dumpty episode. We pick up the story in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You ever step into the middle of the conversation, two people have been talking for a while, you step into the conversation, you're kind of like, what in the world are you talking about? I'm completely lost. That's how we feel when we read verse 5, isn't it? Paul says, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate, to all of you. And you're saying, what are you talking about? What is this pain that has been caused? caused? I believe the best way for us to understand it is to go back to the first letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church, Chapter 5. Now, Corinth is a church. The more you get to know it, the more you just think these people. If ever there was a church that is worse than my church, it's the church of Corinth. I mean, they were a mess. Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles, meaning among non-Christians, unbelievers. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Paul says, <laughs> what pagans do by healthy conscience, you should, you should be doing because of instruction of Scripture, but, but you're, accept, you're, you're tolerating this. A so man is brazenly committing incest. Verse 2, he says, and you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Paul says, you pride yourself on your tolerance. You're not being tolerant, you're being proud. You're patting your back, yourself on the back, saying, oh, we don't judge here. We want to be a safe place for incestuous people. That breaks the heart of God. How arrogant for you to put yourself above God's concerns. So, Paul goes on and tells them they should be filled with grief, take some action. Instead of tolerating, they need to remove this person from their midst. Now, that may sound like it's harsh, but remember this is the last step in, um, in the process of discipline. And the purpose is always to restore, to put the pieces back together. Now, church discipline is not something we talk about. It's very well misunderstood. In fact, in fact, when, as soon as I mention church discipline, my bet is you have, you're having a bunch of horror stories of stuff you've read in the paper before thinking, ugh. Let's correct some of those misconceptions today. 
Because the reality is, you are the key to church discipline. Church discipline happens every day in the church. Some church discipline basics. First of all, the first question, the most important question to always ask in church discipline is what's the loving thing to do? It's not anger, it's not control, it's love. And, 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 and the way we begin that is by assessing how serious is this situation? How serious is this sin? By the way, it's really one of the stupid things people say is all sins are the same. You won't find that in the Bible. All sins do separate us from God, but don't tell the person who's been raped all sins are the same. All sins are not the same. In Matthew chapter 13, we get an example Jesus shares about sometimes sins just need to be overlooked. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a story about weeds that are growing up in, a, in, 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 the, in the field with wheat. And the workers come to the master and say, do you want us to pull out the weeds? And the master says, no, leave them there. You may end up pulling out some of the healthy wheat along with the weeds. Let them grow until the harvest and I will take care of them. Some things it's best just to let God take care of. Just to overlook Proverbs chapter 19 verse 11. A person's insight gives him patience. His virtue is to overlook an offense. However, there are sins that need to be taken on. Jude chapter 1 speaks of this kind of thing, verse 22. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. There are some sins that it's just like you don't save some from, you don't take strong action, there's going to be trouble. So we need to assess the seriousness of the problem. The old preacher used to say, um, you have to determine whether a problem is a cold or cancer. If it's cold, treat the symptoms, it'll go away. If it's cancer, you got to do surgery. The problem is we tend to do the opposite. Sometimes there's colds that we overreact to. We do surgery and it makes matters worse. You ever have a situation that just kind of gets under your skin and so you pick, 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 pester, pester, pester. I want to get this right, I want to get this right. And, and, and by the end of the day, the way that you've dealt with the problem has made the problem worse than if you just left it alone. On the other hand, the other danger is that we often have is to minimize. If it's cancer and you treat it like a cold, if you will allow me to mess up the metaphor, not only will it metastasize in the person, it will infect other people as well. And so we need to assess how serious is the situation. Do we just leave it to God? Or do we take responsibility? Paul says sometimes we need to take responsibility. The Corinthian church had been round-shouldered about this man who was committing incest. Paul says take action. Verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. Notice how Jesus is brought into this whole thing. And I am with you in spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus. See, it's about Jesus. It's not about the church. It's not about Paul. Hand the, that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. I know it's pretty strong language. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Again, the goal is not punitive. The goal is salvation. The goal is we want to put the piece, help Humpty Dumpty to get the pieces back together again. But it's not going to be done by, it's not going to happen if we do nothing. Verse 6, he goes on to say, give us another reason why we need to, practice the discipline, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven 
leavens the whole batch of dough. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch. Paul says if you tolerate deadly sins, you'll not only destroy the person, but you'll infect the church. Tolerated sin becomes approved sin. Alexander Pope said it so well, vice is a monster of so frightful mien as to be hated, need but to be seen. Yet seen too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. There are sins that the modern generation and even modern, some modern churches embrace today that in the 1950s, even people who aren't Christians would have said were wicked, were awful, were destructive. Why is it that we, we are at this point? It is not because we are a more moral nation, but first we became familiar with the face, and then we endured, and then we pitied, and now we embrace. Tolerated sin teaches approval of sin. Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. So he instructs, let this man experience the consequences of his choices. Previously, he said, hand him over to Satan. If he wants to follow a satanic path, if he wants to obey Satan, then don't protect him from the consequences. Verse 9, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people I do not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters or cat lovers. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. If you'd never associate with any immoral people, you'd never leave your own house. You couldn't get a job. You couldn't play sports. He said, but actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anybody who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral. In other words, unrepentant or greedy or an idolater or abusive, verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. How do you respond to that kind of person? Again, it's not like you lock the front door so they can't come in, but you're clear and you're loving, but you don't treat them like nothing has changed. Now, that may sound harsh until you realize that Paul here is describing how to deal with the extreme cases. Most church discipline doesn't get to this point uh, for several different reasons, but most church discipline, quite frankly, is one-on-one. Hear me on that. You are the church. If we're talking about church discipline, we're talking about you, what we do, you do every day. Sometimes people say, I wish the church would do, and I want to say to them, you're the church, do it, you know. You are the church. Don't be thinking organizationally here primarily. Again, so let's talk about five practical steps then for church discipline that apply to all of us. See, the first step is self-examination, self-discipline. Matthew chapter 7 verse 1, you may have heard Jesus' words, do not judge so that you will not be judged. I think it's probably the most familiar passage in Scripture these days. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you'll be measured by the same standard you use. Jesus said, if you judge others, it's fair to expect you're going to be judged by the same standard. Verse 3, why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye and don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye, hypocrite. 
First, take the beam of wood out of your own eye and then leave your brother alone because who are you to judge them? You've had a beam in your own eye. That's not what it says. First, take the beam of wood out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. If your brother has a splinter in his eye, it's hurting. It could get infected. He could lose his sight. Is it really compassionate for you to say, oh, you don't really have a splinter? Who is it for me to judge that you have a splinter? Your brother's hurting. The question is, what's the loving thing to do? But first you examine yourself. Do you have the same sin? You need to repent. Are your motives pure? Or are you in, are just vindictive? Is your... Is your perspective clear? Or is it distorted because of experiences you've had in the past or the experiences with this person or the beam that you've had in your eye in the past? Examination, self-examination. Second level discipline is loving confrontation. Galatians 6.1, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, underline that, spiritual, restore Underline that. Such a person with a gentle spirit, gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is the law of love. See, most of the time when people think of church discipline, they think the big church organization. Church discipline most of the time is Proverbs 27, 17, as, arpen, as iron sharpens iron, one person sharpens another. It's talking to each other every day. What we say in our small groups and to our friends. Paul says, carry one another's burdens. That's church discipline. You're burdened for your friend. You want to help your friend. You want to carry their burden. Galatians 6.1, notice... You are spiritual, restore such a person. That doesn't mean that you have to have all the spiritual experience of Billy Graham or Ruth Graham, but you do need to have some tread worn on the tires. And if you're not spiritually ready, then don't do it. But don't go talk to other people about it. Let me say it again. Don't go talk to other people about it. If you're not going to talk to the person, keep your mouth shut because you're just gossiping. You're just being malicious. No matter what you want to tell yourself your motives are. Notice it says restore with a gentle spirit. To restore means to reset a bone. Gentle is the word meekness, which is power under control. If you have to have a bone reset, what kind of doctor do you want to have? I remember when I was a little kid, I broke my arm and the doctor said my two bones in my, in my wrist were like this. He was going to need to reset the bones. And he said, I'm sorry, but it's going to hurt. And I discovered that my doctor was a truth-telling doctor. Now, what kind of doctor do you want to reset your bones? You want a weak doctor who's so afraid of hurting your, you know, causing pain in you that he doesn't pull on it very hard and doesn't do the work, doesn't, doesn't get done? Do you want a doctor who has no sympathy who <laughs> kind of enjoys the fact that he's inflicting pain. No, you want a gentle doctor. Power, under control, and caring. That's what we're here to be. Imagine you take your car to the shop. It gets inspected. It, you're, you know, they, they look over for the tune-up. And the guy says, your car is in amazing shape. You should be proud of yourself for how well you take care of this car. Before the day is over, your brakes give out. 
brake fluid is gone. You take it back. So why don't you tell me there's a hole in my, in, in, in my brake fluid line? The guy says, well, I'll be honest with you. I don't want to hurt your feelings. You know, and I, I, I want to be the kind of garage that people can feel comfortable bringing their cars into, no matter what condition their car is in. And if I tell people their car's in bad shape, sometimes they don't want to come back. What do you say to that guy? You say, hey, listen, when I bring my car to you, I'm not looking for you to build my self-esteem. I'm looking for you to fix my car so it can run well and I can be safe. Imagine you go to the doctor, and the doctor does the whole examination and says, you are fit as a fiddle. I mean, you you could be an Olympic athlete. You're in such good shape. Before the day is over, your heart gives out. You discover that your arteries are so clogged you are one jelly donut away from certain death. You go to the doctor and say, Doc, why didn't you tell me? And the doctor says, well, to be honest with you, I was looking at you. And if I was really honest with you, I'd say, you have all the physical conditioning of the Pillsbury Doughboy, but I don't want to hurt your feelings. And to be honest with you, there are times when I've told people the truth about their physical condition, and they don't listen. They want, they, they'll go to another doctor, and I lose business, and people don't like me. And I don't, want, I don't want to be the kind of doctor that people come back to. I want to be safe for sick people to come to me. What would you say? Oh, that makes sense. Thanks. No, you'd say, talk. When I come to you, I want you, I want you to tell me the truth so I can get healthy. Because when something really matters to us, we don't want joyful delusions. We want the truth. And that is, if that is true for our cars and for our bodies, how much more true is it for the eternal soul? You don't want a church that tells you, that tells you things just so you'll feel good about yourself. That refuses to speak God's truth because they're afraid you won't come back. That's not loving. I love Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. God's word will tell the truth about you to heal your soul. But the confrontation needs to be loving. That means avoid extreme language. Don't use words like you always or you never. That's just inviting an argument. Don't make it personal. Remember how Paul brings in Jesus the best thing you can do is to make it clear for people, this is not between you and me. This is God's character. This is God's word. And the question is, what are you going to, you're wrestling with God right now. The wrestling match is not with me. I would add to that, focus on help for the healing, not condemning for the past. Don't just keep going back to what you did, what you did. You need to say, hey, and this is the way forward. This is the hope that you have. This is the positive direction God would want you to take. And talk as a fellow struggler, not as a superior. Talk as one who has that beam in their eye to somebody who has a speck in theirs. Listen to how people talk about, listen to even how preachers talk about justice in our world today. You know the problem that I have with it? Very rarely do they talk about, do they talk like they are people with beams in their eye, with pe- talking to people who have specs. They sound like they're talking about people who have beams in, two people who have beams in their eye while they have no problems. 
while they're clean. And that's not God's way. Self-examination, second, loving confrontation, third, group intervention. This is fun. Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Again, notice the first step is a one-on-one conversation. Go directly to the person you're trying to help. That's the loving thing to do. Doesn't that make sense? Imagine, uh, imagine uh, on Sunday morning before I come in here, I, I notice I, I'm, I'm talking to, to Tom Pounder in the office, and I notice that Tom's zipper is down and it's gaping wide open. If I love Tom, what do I do? This is what I do. I go to our greeters and I tell our greeters, as everybody's coming in this morning, tell them to get their cameras ready for Tom's announcement because we're going to be able to tape some stuff that's going to be hysterical on social media. I mean, you'll want to get pictures of this and we will know if I really care about Tom. I make him aware of it in private alone. I love to share this illustration because you know what Tom Pounder is doing right now. Go to the person themselves. Don't go to somebody else. Here's a good rule. If you haven't said it to the person face-to-face, don't say it to somebody else. If you have not talked face-to-face, if you've not had the courage to talk face-to-face, if you've not had the love to talk face-to-face with somebody about your thoughts, don't go talk to somebody else and say, I need your advice, I need prayer requests. You're not, you're not looking to love that person. You're looking to feel superior and to build a coalition to support you. If your friend listens, Jesus said, you've won your brother. Verse 16 goes on, if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church, Go bring in two or three people. Why? To power up? No. No, 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 no. First of all, it gives you accountability. Uh, you go to two or three, one or two spiritual people, you have to convince them that it's a problem. If they say to you, you know, we think you're oh, we exaggerating this. We, we think you need to let this go. It holds you accountable. Second, it... Um, it, it, it brings in people to give objectivity. Notice what Jesus says, by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. You have a perspective, the one you're talking to has a perspective, but there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors that are going to see things that you don't see. But then if the three of you are in agreement in the middle of the conversation, it'll help the other person take the situation more seriously. If that second conversation doesn't work, Paul says, tell the church. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking of this horror story of people standing in front of you on Sunday morning being shamed. How many times have we done that at New Life? Never. Again, you are the church. What does it mean to take it to the church? I think it means, first of all, involve the people who are involved relationally in the situation. I think it also means you need to take it to the elders, maybe. You need to take it to the leaders who can give you oversight and coverage. While that may sound harsh, <laughs> you know who practices this? It's called intervention. 
An intervention is when somebody has an addiction or a drug problem. Psychologists will say, bring together a, people, a group of people who love them, have them make clear what the problem is, have them make clear what the next steps of change need to be, and help make it very clear what the consequences are going to be if they don't take those steps. Last year, according to the Association of Intervention Specialists, the success rate of properly done interventions is between 80 and 90%. The report claims that when we stage an intervention for family members dealing with loved ones abusing drugs or alcohol, we are highly successful in achieving the end goal. I love this because some people think interventions are something that were created recently. Jesus taught interventions 2,000 years ago. That's why the Bible says that the Bible makes the simple wise. If we'll just listen to it and do what it says. Now the next step, if somebody doesn't respond, is intentional isolation. This is hard. Verse 17, halfway through, says, if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, then let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. How do you treat an unbeliever? You don't, you're not mean to them, but you don't treat them like a believer. You don't shun them. You don't bolt the door against them. But neither do you let them teach. Neither do you let them serve publicly. Neither do you entrust them. And you may even need to distance yourselves they're a dangerous person. Again, that may sound harsh, but remember, this is the person who refuses to listen. Nothing has progressed so far, and it's a last resort. It's done painfully. Again, you're probably thinking about bad examples of churches that have done this in bad ways for wrong reasons. And let me give an example. One time we had to do this at New Life. It was probably 20 or 25 years ago. Uh, there was a young man in our young adults ministry who was making young women in that ministry feel uncomfortable as a result of his being inappropriate to young women left the group and then they left the church the leader of that ministry came to us and said i got a problem i think i need to i think i know what i need to do but i i, I want to have your wisdom and coverage and we agreed you need to go back to that young man and you need to tell him knock it off we discovered that this had been an ongoing problem with him even before he came to New Life at other churches he'd been part of. And um, we said, knock it off. If you make one more young lady feel uncomfortable, she won't be the one leaving the church. You will. I hate to say that kind of thing. But sure enough, he was inappropriate again and we had to say to him, you are not welcome here anymore. You must go. Is that fun? Is that good? No, but we're shepherds of the church. We're shepherds of the sheep. And if we don't have the courage to take a stand against wolves who are going to hurt other people, you end up having a whole bunch of sheep that can be bruised. One bad wolf can bruise and cause a lot of bleeding to a lot of, to a lot of sheep. Again, Paul says the leaven will spread through the whole dough. It's an extreme case. And it's sad when it gets to that point. But the goal is always step five, complete restoration. 
we pick up the conversation. <laughs> we pick up the conversation now in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. You're saying, wow, it took us a long time to get back to 2 Corinthians 2. I thought that was a passage today. On verse 6 now, Paul continues because they've gone through the process with this guy. They isolated him, and now it's brought him to repentance. Verse 6. This punishment by the majority is sufficient for that person. As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Again, some of you are like, really? I don't know, that sounds kind of harsh. I can't imagine doing that. Have you ever heard Jesus tell the story of the prodigal son? It's the story of the prodigal son. This is the story of the prodigal son. This man has two sons, and he has one who's especially rebellious outwardly. And he comes to dad. He probably has a history of this. He comes to dad, and he says, Dad, I want my inheritance. I don't want to live here anymore under your authority. I want my freedom. And what does the dad do? He lets him go. This is what Paul means when he says, turn him over to Satan. If they are dead set on rebelling against God and obeying Satan as their master, let him go. Don't be codependent. Don't save, don't protect them from the consequences. It is so hard. I didn't share this the other two services. I have a friend in ministry who, whose son kept getting into drugs and they kept getting recovery and not and recovery. And, and, and I remember being with him one time and said, Jim, how's your son doing? Jim said, I don't know. I haven't seen him for a while. Last I heard he was living as a homeless person under a, uh, uh, under a highway. It ripped Jim apart. But the last time he was in recovery, they said, listen, we're not going to rescue you again. You choose to go that direction, we're not going to enable you. It killed him. Here's the good news. He came to his senses. And he came back home. And now he's in ministry with his dad. This is the story of the prodigal son. So the prodigal son goes to the distant country. He uh, wastes his money. Friends are gone. Eaten with the pigs. And Jesus says, he came to his senses. He essentially said, Satan is a horrible master. I would rather be a servant in my dad's house than a servant of Satan on my own. I'm going to go back home and repent and apologize and say, Dad, can I serve here? You see the humility there? I'm willing to be under your authority, Dad. I want to come home. And what does the dad do when the son comes home? He runs with open arms. When the prodigal comes home, we celebrate. We don't hold grudges. We don't nurture grievances. We run with open arms and say, it is so good to have you home. Because the church disciplined this incestuous man. He repented. I'm going to talk this week about a number of things that I've shortened in this message. What are the fruit, what the fruit of repentance? I'm going to go in more detail later, but I would say three words. Conviction, contrition, and change. Conviction, I was wrong. Contrition is I regret hurting others. I regret sinning against God. Finally, there's change. I want to go back home and serve. I want to go back home and be under God's authority. And now it's the church's responsibility to forgive so he won't be overwhelmed by excessive grief. See, the power to change us is the power of grace. 
Law can show us the right way, but the Bible makes it really clear, the law never saves anybody. Grace saves us. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I wish I could read all of Psalm 103 for you this morning. Verse 11 says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love for those who fear him. I love as we, as, as we're, we have stronger and stronger telescopes that see deeper into deeper space. Every time I see that, we've never gotten to the depth of space. You can never get to the depth of God's love for you. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And I love that because east and west never meet. God completely removes your sin from you. Corey Ten Boom, I, I love to share, once said, when God forgives our sin, he casts them in the deepest sea and then posts a no fishing sign. Isn't that good? See, worldly people think we're going to be changed by shame. We're going to be changed by manipulation. going to cancel. We're going to shame. We're going to make you feel bad. Nobody's ever changed by that. Listen to what Titus 2 says. Listen to what Titus 2 says about grace. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people. The grace of God saves, washes us and makes us clean. But notice next, the grace of God instructs us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts. The grace of God saves, the grace of God teaches. The grace of God teaches. And third, it transforms it teaches us to live a sensible, righteous, and godly way in this present age. It's really true. You're saved by grace through faith. Not just initially, but every day of our lives. So Paul says, forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. The church must be a place where repentant people know they are forgiven and they are welcome home. Paul says in verse 8, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Sometimes people will withhold their encouragement from somebody who's repentant because they're afraid if I encourage them too much, if I forgive them too much, if I quit reminding them of what they've done, maybe they will just go back to their old ways. That's manipulation. That's not grace. 2 Corinthians 2.10, Paul says, Anyone you forgive, I do too. For what I have forgiven, it is for your benefit in the presence of Christ, so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. See, Satan wants to ensnare people in their sins and in their past. When you come to Christ and are saved by grace, Jesus has a new identity for you. And you know what that identity is? Righteousness. You wear the righteous robes of God. You know how God sees you? Perfect, pure in his sight. You know how Satan wants you to see yourself? Dirty. Defeated. Hopeless. Jesus says, saved by grace, full of hope, redeemed. The question is, when you talk to people who've repented and come back to Christ, 
Will you use the voice of Satan? Will you be Satan's voice? Don't you remember what you did? You hurt me so much. But did you remember that? Do you remember that? Or will you be the voice of Christ? You are saved by grace through faith, faith, just like the rest of, just like I am. I really want New Life to be known as a church that stands for truth and lives with overwhelming grace. When people think of New Life, I want for them to say, that is a church that is bold with the character of God. They will not compromise on what God says is loving and not loving, what God says is good and what God says is evil. But you will not find a more merciful, understanding group of people. I mean, these people who love you enough to tell you the truth, but it is a church filled with people who've done the worst kind of things and they just love each other. That's the kind of church God wants us to be. A church where people can be changed and accepted and find a home where they are really loved in Christ. We are changed by grace. Let me share with you story one. Many of you may recognize the name of Andrew Claven, a Jewish writer. He shares the story of how grace changed him. When he was 13 years old, he grew up in a Jewish family, had a bar mitzvah, got lots of money. But he said over time, that money that he had just kind of soured on him. He writes, the majesty and profundity of Judaism were lost on me. My parents didn't believe in God. God had no living presence in our family. We didn't say grace before meals or prayers before bedtime. We didn't read the Bible at all. One day, Clavin made a decision, I'm going to leave Judaism. And for the next 35 years, he lived as an atheist. But he says, looking back, he can see the grace of Jesus pursuing him all the time. There was a time he contemplated suicide, but God put a Christian baseball player in his life at that moment that he was interviewing who encouraged him and kept him going. In his marriage, he said he experienced genuine deep love, and it always made him wonder, where does this, where, what's the source of this great love? He writes, And Christ came to me in the stories that I read. When I was in my 40s, I was lying in bed with a novel, and one of the characters whom I admired said a prayer before going to sleep, and I thought to myself, if he can pray, I can too. I laid the book aside and whispered a three-word prayer in gratitude for the contentment that I'd found. I simply said, thank you, God, and went to bed. God's response was an act of extravagant grace. I woke up the next morning and everything had changed. There was a sudden clarity and brightness to familiar faces and objects. I called this experience the joy of my joy. I realized that prayer, that God, transformed my life utterly, giving me a depth and pleasure of experience I had never known before. I asked God at that moment, how can I thank you for what you have done for me? What could I possibly do? What could I possibly offer in return? He said as clearly as if God had spoken out loud, God answered, now you should be baptized. I was stunned. Nothing could have been further from my mind. I was a realist who believed in science and reason. A worldling who loved sex, politics, and a good malt scotch. 
I feared that becoming a Christian would estrange me from my past and my parents and my culture and even from reality itself. My bar mitzvah had been an empty ritual devoid of God, but my baptism was an outward expression of an authentic conviction. And the moment I rose from my baptism, I knew that I had stepped through some invisible barrier between myself and a remarkable new journey with God. Within a week or so, my wife noticed, too, a new joy, a new easiness. My soul had found its northern star, and that star still leads me on. What changed Andrew Clavin? Not law. What changed him was grace. Knowing that Jesus, despite his rebellion, despite his sin, Jesus had been pursuing him all along and wanted to make him whole. Is there hope for Humpty Dumpty? All the king's horse and all the king's men can't put Humpty together again. All the work we may try will not work. But because of the grace of God and godly friends, we can learn to walk in truth because the grace of God through Jesus Christ can make you whole, cleanse the dirty, and put the pieces back together again. Is there anybody here who's fallen? And today is the day you want to come home. Let me invite you. Don't put it off another day. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, for your love for us, for your grace. Lord, we would hear your voice right now and we would come home. It's through Christ I pray. Amen.